Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Brilliant. Lovely to see you all. As uh, Ang uh, not Angus, as Neil just said, we're closing out Judges today, and we'll actually be in Judges chapter 19. We won't read every single verse, but we will start at the beginning, and we will finish at the end. You may want to have it open in front of you, either on a Bible or a phone. It will make it a little bit easier to follow along. Hopefully, some of it will come up on the screen. I'll be reading from the ESV, although I change a few words here and there from the NIV to make the meaning a little bit clearer. So yes, we're coming to the end, the final preach from this book of Judges, and it is the most depressing. I'll give you the warning right now. With this story, and what happens subsequently, because there are another two chapters which we don't have time to cover... The book of Judges ends on a huge downer. It's probably the biggest downer in the entire Bible. It reminds me of a film called Arlington Road. Has anyone ever seen Arlington Road? It wasn't a particularly well-known film, released in 1999 with Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins. And it's a film about a guy played by Jeff Bridges who thinks his neighbour or his neighbours are terrorists. And he's trying to convince everyone that they're terrorists and they're planning this terror attack. Sorry, this is a spoiler alert, by the way, for anyone who wants to watch this film later on. And no one believes him. But in the end, it turns out he's right. And his neighbour, or the neighbours, they blow up. Jeff Bridges, the good character, along with most of the FBI HQ, they frame him as the terrorist. And the actual terrorists then just fade uh, into the distance. They move to the next town and that is the end of the film. And I went to see that in the cinema, New Year's Day, 2000, not knowing what the film was about. And I'll tell you, at the end of that film, there is silence in the cinema when that happens, because everyone goes, that is not how a Hollywood film is meant to end. It is not meant to end with the baddies getting away with it and the goodie being blown up and framed as the baddie. It's not meant to end like that. And I think the book of Judges is a bit like that. The author, he's taken us on this roller coaster ride of stories, hasn't he? These heroes of faith, which we've been reading about, who do great things for God, but they always fall in some way. They're always imperfect. They always fail. And yet they are also always rescued by God's grace in some way. It's this story of chaos and of mess and idolatry and adultery with real low points. But until this point in the book, the stories have always been punctuated with hope with these glimpses of God's grace. The enemies of God are defeated, aren't they? Often they're defeated at the hands of the judge. There is a victory. Israel comes together at times to fight the enemy under their God. Samson, when all of his hair's cut off and he finds himself in prison, what does it say? It says the hair begins to grow again. And he regains his strength and in his final moment of his life, he pulls down the temple of Dagon. It's a victory even in what looks like a defeat, but not today, not at the end of the book. Today we read a terrible story with no happy ending. There is no hope within it. You are meant to feel completely flat at the end of this book, just as I felt flat at the end of watching that film, Arlington Road. It's not meant to end like this. You sit there in your cinema seat as the credits roll and you think, well, what was the point of all of that? Where's my happy ending? Where's my hope? Judges ends like that. It takes us to the lowest point in the story of Israel so far. And in some ways, one of the lowest points of the entire Old Testament. It leaves you to say, what's all that about then? 
what was that all about? Where's the hope in that? So the story which we're about to read today starts with two anonymous characters. We don't know their names. There's a, a man, he's a Levite of the tribe of Levi, and then he's his concubine, his wife. See, after the story of Samson, which was the last judge that we looked out, the focus of the book of Judges shifts from these great heroes listed in Hebrews chapter 11, Gideon, Samson, etc., and then it shifts to these anonymous individuals that the closing chapters are about. These individuals who just represent what's happening in Israel in general. This is how individuals at that time were. It could be anybody. That's why they're anonymous. Anyone could be one of these people. It's how these people were. It's how these Israelites were. This is how man, humankind, in his natural state in Adam, is. <clears throat> a few years ago, I um, preached. I think it was around Easter time, and I was wanting to talk about sin. And I quoted the Anglican writer Francis Spufford, who has a particular definition of sin, which I like, and it involves a very naughty word, which I did say at that time in order to provoke a reaction. And I'm not going to do it again, but you can say it in your mind. I'm going to lead you into saying it mentally in your mind. He says sin is the human propensity to F things up. And you can say that in your head. And really, I want to say it out loud now, because I want to provoke a reaction, because that's what sin is meant to do. He says we think of sin as naughty but nice, you know, that extra slice of chocolate cake, which you shouldn't have. That's sort of our view of that word. But you need something more provocative to bring out what it actually means. I will replace that F word with the word, the human propensity to screw things up. I think that will be acceptable in this sermon. That's what's going on in this story. It's what the book of Judges is consistently illustrating, the human propensity to screw things up. Sometimes it's called total depravity. That nothing escapes the taint of this propensity. That this propensity touches every aspect of human life. And that's what the author of Judges is describing as he puts these two long stories at the end of his book. You can read the rest of them later on. And you'll also probably be just as puzzled by them as you are by the one today. It touches every area of life in Israel. It's religious life, it's moral life, it's family life, the national life. All screwed up by humans. It's what we as natural people are like. You watch the news at the moment, you see things going on in the world, and you just want to say, why can't you leave things be sometimes? We've just got this human propensity to, to mess it up, to meddle. The story starts with a very familiar refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what they thought was right in his own eyes or in their own eyes. And this is the third time in three chapters in this part of the book that the writer uses this or a similar phrase. It's the take-home message. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he thought was right in his own eyes. And that statement has two sides. Usually we take it to mean that the problem was Israel didn't have a king. And if they'd had a king, then they'd have had more guidance and they would have been led to not enter into all this confusion of doing what's right in your own eyes. But there's another side to it as well, because Israel later on is given a king. We have King Saul, followed by King David, followed by Solomon, followed by Rehoboam. The kingdom splits, and then you get two lines of kings, the kings of Israel and Judah. And what's characteristic of most of those kings is they're exceptionally adept at leading the nation into sin. Even then, when Israel did have a king, they were being led into sin. And part of the phrase isn't just that they haven't got a king and that's a problem. It's part of the, the problem is, you don't need a king to lead you into sin. We're perfectly capable of doing it ourselves at the individual level. I can't just blame somebody else. Why did you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because she made me. We like to shift the blame. And so it is both true that there is no king, and that's part of the problem. Who was meant to be the king of Israel at that time? 
Yahweh. The Lord is meant to be the king. Israel isn't meant to need a king when it's constituted under Moses. God is your king. He tells you what is right and wrong. But even when you do get an earthly king, a human king, it doesn't necessarily help the situation. This is the human propensity to screw things up. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning or staying in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. And he took to himself a concubine or a wife from Bethlehem in Judah. The story starts with this single man and this single woman, a couple. It starts with this one point, this anonymous couple. That's where the story starts. And it ends in civil war that affects the whole nation. Kind of goes from this dot, this one thing that, hap- thing that happens in a corner somewhere that will spread throughout the whole country. The previous story in chapter 17 and 18 is the same. It starts with just one person in one location and then infects the whole country. Verse 2. And this Levite, his concubine, was unfaithful to him or became angry with him. Some of your footnotes might say, it's not clear. And she went away to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband, this Levite, arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. So this Levite, who at the beginning of this story is painted in a very favourable form, picture, he sets off to woo his wife back. And this gives us a glimpse of hope, doesn't it? As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, this is great. This is a little bit like Jesus in some ways, setting off to kindly woo back to himself those who've deserted him. But how disappointing the hope will turn out to be. The woman, we're not going to read it, but the woman responds well, and her father is a model of hospitality to this Levite. They have a very jolly time. There's lots of eating and drinking. They stay there for several days. The scene is very warm. It's very positive. Slightly comical because the Levite and his concubine want to leave several times and the father-in-law keeps saying, no, stay longer, stay longer, have more food, have more drink, and so they keep delaying. And eventually it gets to the fifth day and it gets late on in the day and the father-in-law says, stay, stay a bit longer. And the Levite says, no, we're going to leave, we are going to have to leave. So he and his concubine, the wife and the servant and their donkeys, it says they set out and they set out in the evening as the day is late to go back home. Verse 10. So he rose up. And departed, this is the Levite and his wife and their servant, and they arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Now remember at this time, this is before Jerusalem is an Israelite city. At that time it's called Jebus, it's a Canaanite city. It's a long time before it becomes an Israelite city. And so understandably, the Levite is very reluctant to want to spend the night here because it's a city that belongs to the enemy, it belongs to the Canaanites. He wouldn't expect a warm welcome in this town. So rather than stay there, he says, no, we're going to push on to another city called Gibeah, which belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. It's about another five or six miles to go, because that's an Israelite town. And his thinking is there, we will have a warm welcome. There are brothers and sisters. And so they go on to this town of Gibeah. And the shock is that in Gibeah, there is no warm welcome. The man and his wife, the servant, the donkeys go in and no one welcomes them. There is no hospitality and they are left in the town square at nightfall. And that's devastating for a verdict over what the Israelites were like in that place. See, if Judges is about the Canaanization of Israel, about Israel becoming like the surrounding peoples, and if the modern parallel is to watch out for the Canaanization of God's people today, the church, then... 
we are to make something of this as well. How ironic, you see, that if they had stopped in Jebus, in Jerusalem, in the Canaanite city, they may have received a warm welcome, and the terrible events which unfold may never have then happened. In a minute, we'll see that Gibeah is worse than just its lack of hospitality, but at least its indifference to their own brothers and sisters is damning. And that's something we need to watch for as well. Is the community that we belong to, this people of God, welcoming to brothers and sisters who even may just be passing through? It's a basic expectation that God has of his people. And the Benjamites, they fail at it. And it's an indictment against the general condition of Israel. People did what was right in their own eyes. They did not seek the counsel of God, even in matters as basic as who you fellowship with. So another person arrives in the story. He's called the Old Man. And he lives in Gibeah, but he's not from that place. He's from somewhere else, but that's where he's living. And he comes to do what the people of Gibeah should have done. And he arrives to this party and he says, you don't want to stay in the town square. It's dangerous to stay in the town square. Come and stay with me. And that's an ominous note as well, because this is meant to be a friendly city, a city which is on your side. And yet he's saying, it's dangerous to stay out. Come and stay with me. And so verse 22, that's where we've jumped forward to. As this this old man, the Levite and his wife, were making their hearts merry, again a nice warm beginning, eating and drinking, behold, the men of the city of Gibeah, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, the Levite, that we may have sex with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, Don't act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men wouldn't listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until the morning. And as morning appeared... The woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. That's a difficult story to read. And we should think, when we read this, we should think, I've I've heard of this before. I've heard this before. I know this city. This place is familiar. The people are familiar. This is Sodom, isn't it? We read about this a few books ago in the Bible, the book of Genesis. This is the city of Sodom. But that can't be right because here in this city in Gibeah, these are the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're not the enemies of God, they're the children of God. And that can't be right. How can the people of God become the people of Sodom? And so the story from its very warm and rosy and hopeful beginning, that eating and drinking and reconciliation at the father-in-law's house, unravels very, very quickly. It unravels fast. God's people want sex and they want it with a man, one of their own brothers, and they want it now. And these two men, the Levite and the old man in the house, so positively portrayed thus far, suddenly become monsters. It reminds me of another film from the mid-90s. Again, spoiler alert, but I don't recommend you watch it. It's called The Devil's Advocate. I don't know if anyone ever saw that. Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. And I was at university at the time. There's a film club. You pay a pound, you go and watch a film. It was what was on. So I thought, I'll go and watch that. I didn't know what it was about. And it starts like a John Grisham law drama. You know, those sort of, the firm and all that sort of stuff. And you're merrily watching it. And then all of a sudden, at one point in the film, the face of one of the characters distorts into the face of a demon momentarily and then comes back again. 
So, well, that's a bit odd. I wasn't expecting that. And then the film suddenly turns into a horror film. The characters are demons and the devil and so forth. And the whole, it's a very shocking experience when you weren't expecting that. Um, and that's what's like reading this story. All of a sudden, it's like you're thinking you're getting this, 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 and then all of a sudden everything flips. And the characters become demonic. It's suddenly a horror film. These are normal people, but they've become monsters. And history shows that this lies at the very heart of what it means to be a human in Adam. The capacity for each of us as a supposedly normal person to suddenly flip at times and become a monster. The old man, see, gets his priorities completely muddled up. And instead of protecting the vulnerable, his daughter, he fears more the loss of face and the dishonour he might bring upon himself. And so to protect the Levite, he offers his daughter instead. And he says to these people of God, literally, do with her what is good in your own eyes. That's his offer. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Take this girl, do with her what you want, what you think is right. And in in their eyes, that turns out to be gang rape, abuse and death. Now, they're not satisfied with that. They say, no, we don't want that, the men of the town. But inside the house, the old man, the Levite, they still fear for their honour more than protecting the vulnerable. And this Levite, who only days before has gone kindly to woo his wife back again, was enjoying his father-in-law's hospitality, now he grabs her and thrusts her out into the night beyond the door, and he abandons her. And there she is, gang-raped and abused, and it says, all night long. And it's a horror story. There is this faceless, powerless, nameless victim, not given a voice, thrust into the horror of the night, into the hands of the sons of Abraham, into the hands of those who call themselves God's people. And she is destroyed. And it is one of the most damning indictments in the whole Bible against the people of Israel. This is how Canaanites behave. It's how Sodomites behave. God has spent generations trying to eradicate this kind of behaviour. And his chosen instrument to do that, Israel, has succumbed to it completely. And the point of the story is very clear. Israel has become Sodom. Utterly evil. They actually thought the right thing to do, what is good in your eyes, is to demand sex with a man, and when they couldn't have that, to destroy a woman in every way possible. And there's things like this. When you talk about holy war in Canaan and God's people coming in to push the peoples of the land out, which seems very unpalatable to us, you have to enter into the reality of these stories, the horrors which are going on. It's stories like this that show the deep, deep wickedness that God is trying to destroy in this place. But the enemy is no longer just out there. The enemy is now in here. And it's the Benjaminites and the Levites and this old man who now have flipped into the realm of the deeply demonic. And so we get to this point in the story and we think, well, what is going on here? What is the point of all this? What is the point of calling Abraham? What's the point of calling Isaac and Jacob, of rescuing the nation from starvation through Joseph? of rescuing them from slavery in Egypt through Moses and then Joshua and bringing them into this allegedly promised land? What's the point of being given the law? Because we have sunk to the lowest of lows here. And yet I do want to say from our perspective now, after the events of what happened 2,000 years ago, as we look on the run-up to Easter now, there is hope in this situation. We think about that Levite. The Levite who'd gone after his wife. He was doing a good job. 
And yet in the moment of pressure, he succumbs to evil. And he thrusts the person who he should have been protecting out into the horrors of the night. And we think, what should have happened? You see, imagine the bloodthirsty hounds are baying at the door for you. They're there for you. And when they're there for you, what are you going to do? They're clamouring for you to have their way with you. They want to gang rape you. What should you do? And we think of Jesus, who once came to Jerusalem, the city that should have accepted him, that should have welcomed him, that should have known him as its king, but didn't, and left him not just in the square, but in the horrors of Golgotha and the darkness of that night. Jesus stood at that door with the enemy on the other side, beating on it, baying for his blood, and he didn't step back. He didn't turn around and thrust someone out instead of him. He opened the door and he went right through it, and he walked open-eyed into the experience of that suffering. This is not about Jesus, but it's a picture of what he did for us, that Jesus offered himself for us, that walked into the experience of every abused, destroyed, crushed victim and lived that experience. Jesus was not like the Levite or the old man or the other heroes that we've seen in Judges who fail when the pressure is on. Jesus is the hero who doesn't fail. And God offers himself into the hands of wicked men who are baying for his blood. And he's been there, he's been beaten, and he's been abandoned, and he has overcome. He didn't thrust a substitute forward. He went through the door into hell himself. The story continues, verse 27. And the concubine's master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces, one for each tribe of Israel, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. It sends shocks throughout the whole nation. It's gone from a couple to the whole country. Note that God is not mentioned once in this whole story and his absence is a silence which is deafening. And the warm portrayal of the be- Levite at the beginning is meaningless now. Forget that happy, warm, familial scene in Bethlehem. With apparent emotion, he takes his wife. We don't know if she was dead when he picked her up or if he killed her. And he goes home and he cuts her up and he sends her throughout the land. And that's not the end of the story. It then goes on for another two chapters as to what the national ramifications of that are, the consequences of this story where it goes completely national. What happens next, I'll briefly summarise it, is that Israel gathers together. They are shocked by what has happened and they are united as one and they decide to go to war. And there is a civil war which then starts in the nation against all the tribes and the Benjamites. And it's a very bloody and it's a very costly civil war. They make decisions of their own initiative. They don't consult God when they should. 
when they first start it. And the story goes from bad to worse as thousands and thousands of men die. And then the book ends, basically, with a mass kidnapping of virgin women to be taken as wives by the tribe of Benjamin for forced marriage. And in 21 verse 3, the people of Israel are very upset about this. And it says they cry out to God bitterly. And they cry out, why? Why has this happened? And God does not answer them with words. Because the reason why this has happened is actually obvious if you've been reading the book all along. It's the human propensity to screw things up. We can't help ourselves. At every step of the way, it's a person's decision to do something. And we have to take responsibility for that. We can't shove it onto God or someone else. This is an example of suffering which is due to sin. Sometimes suffering is just due to the way things are. But sometimes it's due to sin. We cry out, why? Why? Why are there hungry people still in the world? It's our problem. There is enough food to go around. It's just we have that human propensity. And so God doesn't reply to this cry of the Israelites and the outcome is all bad. The whole book is an explanation for why this has happened. And so the book then ends with, again, the verse which we've read many times, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's our problem. And so this is a mirror for today's church to look in. It's a mirror for us. Our worst enemies are sometimes within. And we have examples of that over the last two decades, three decades, four decades. The reputation of the church in tatters in many areas because of deep, horrific sin which has taken root within the institution that is the church in many places. And so we become indistinguishable from Sodom. Are we holy Are we set apart? Is it visible? Are we different from the world, from those who are naturally in Adam, because we are now in Christ? Do we do what's right in our own eyes? How do we know? It's a depressing end. And it's a huge anticlimax. That's intentional. That's what the writer of Judges intended. And obviously it's not the end of the story. The Bible then goes up. After Judges comes the book of Ruth. You want to go home and be slightly encouraged after Judges, you read Ruth, because Ruth is another example of what's going on amongst ordinary people at the same time where there is hope. They sit alongside one another, and then we end up in 1 Samuel. We end up coming into the kingship of David later on and so forth. But it is a very, very low point, and it's part of our history, it's part of our story. Sometimes people want to say, why do we want to look at this sort of stuff? Why are we interested in raking over these things from the past? And it's part of who we are. It's the same reason, I think, recently I've been watching on Netflix. There's a series called something like Great Events in World War II in Colour. And you think, I'm watching this sort of for entertainment. Why am I watching these horrific things? You watch the mushroom cloud go up over Japan, 80,000 people being incinerated in a moment. But we know it's important. We know it's important that we watch that, that we recognise that it happened, that it's a part of our history, it's a part of the world in which we live. And this too is part of our history. It's part of the world in which we live. We're going to sing now. And uh, if the band can come up. And it's difficult to sing after a message like this because normally you end on a, let's sing. Uh, But this is sad. 
And um, if you use your imagination to enter into the stories, they're difficult stories to read. But we are going to sing of the goodness of God. And we're going to sing of the fact that he doesn't leave his people in this mess. And Jesus does come as promised and rescues us from ourselves and from the world in which we live and from the devil and his demons. So we are going to sing, and we are going to sing of the goodness and love of God. Bernard.